Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, my guest is Patrick D. Hahn. Dr. Hahn is a freelance writer and independent scholar with a long-standing interest in iatrogenic harm and the medicalization of everyday life. He's an affiliate professor of biology at Loyola University in Maryland, and also the author of three books, Madness and Genetic Determinism, His Mental Illness in Our Genes, Prescription for Sorrow, Antidepressants, Suicide, and Violence, and as of recent, Obedience Pills, ADHD, and the Medicalization of Childhood. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Hahn. Hello. Good afternoon. It is so good to have you uh, on our podcast, and I'll tell you why. When I got your book, thank you for, for that, first of all, for writing a book called Obedience Pills, ADHD and the medicalization of childhood. It is literally how I've been feeling and what I've been trying to describe to people when they asked, why are you making such a big deal about this ADHD thing? And when I started reading your book, even just already in the preface there, you said that you will confess your bias at the outset. And you wrote, I believe our default preference should be not to drug kids for behavioral problems and that the burden of proof rests on anyone who thinks this is a good idea. Why did you write that? Yes, well, uh, my, uh, I'd like to say, first of all, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or any kind of medical doctor. Uh, I've never claimed, my background is in zoology. Uh, I've never claimed my degree gives me any authority in these matters. But it has given me a perspective, which I think is undervalued. Our brains, our, our bodies, and I always remember our brains are part of our bodies, uh, are the products of a 500 million years of evolution. Our bodies are marvelous instruments for most of us. They work great. And I've long been disturbed by the received wisdom that. Uh, wants us to see ourselves as fragile beings who need huge amounts of medical care to keep us alive from cradle to grave. And I began looking into these matters a few years ago, and it was like falling down a rabbit hole. Uh, the more I learned, the stranger things got. And I wanted to write about over-medicalization, uh, not specifically psychiatry. But if you're interested in over-medicalization, psychiatry gives you an endless range of examples uh, to draw from. Uh, in the past, the uh, current era of biological psychiatry was ushered in in 1980 with the third iteration of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, dsm 3 uh, Since then, Consumption of psychiatric drugs has skyrocketed. 
and outcomes have steadily gotten worse. That is not what happens when treatments work. Uh, specifically for ADHD, uh, for what we're spend, we spend in excess of $20 billion a year drugging kids for something called ADHD. For that kind of outlay, we could pay the mid-career salaries of an extra 350,000 teachers or 800,000 teachers' aides. And wow. That, that's that's a large number. I mean, when I when I read that, that was one of the impressive quotes or part of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, when I read that, you know, it puts it in perspective because the question is, are we actually supporting the kids and giving them a long term, you know, guidance, or are we just thinking short term and just medicate them so that they're like you said that they're obedient, right, in the classroom or in life, and. Sometimes it doesn't even do that. Sometimes it makes them worse, causes mania, and that becomes an occasion for more diagnoses, more drugs, stronger drugs, higher doses, until somebody who started out with just the problems of childhood uh, ends up a career mental patient. And, you know, before we get into that, because you have some fascinating takes and obviously um, facts on, on the, you know, medication, we'll get into that. But let's start with a question that I often start out with, which is to you, what is ADHD? Well, ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And this is a term that was coined in 1987. But there are clinical accounts of children who today are said to have been suffering from ADHD going back more than a century. And the first of these was published by George Still, the founding father of pediatric medicine in 1902. Uh, he didn't call it ADHD, obviously. He called it a lack of moral control. And Dr. Still published an account of 20 children, uh, 15 boys and five girls. And one thing is for sure when you read Dr. Still's account, this was a bunch of seriously disturbed kids who lied, stole, destroyed property, viciously attacked other children and even adults touched other children sexually, banged their heads, smeared their feces, walked in their sleep, tortured animals, set fires. And the second thing is that, that is clear is that these seriously disturbed children came from seriously disturbed families, rife with tales of drunkenness, illness, abandonment, uh, the father of one of these children had murdered the boy's mother. And Dr. Still gave no consideration at all to the possibility that these children's difficulties may have had their origin in their troubled home lives. Instead, he took all this as evidence that these children came from inferior genetic stock. 
And after him were a number of accounts that are said to be of children suffering from ADHD. And uh, you read these accounts and you ask what the common thread is. Well, that's hard to discern. Uh, if they're writing about the same condition, these researchers can't even agree among them what to call it. So a lack of moral control, organic drivenness, uh, hyperkinetic impulse disorder, post-encephalitic behavior disorder, minimal brain dysfunction, minimal brain damage, hyperkinetic reaction of childhood, hyperactivity, hyperkinetic disorder, attention deficit disorder, and finally, ADHD. And uh, they also have a devil of a time agreeing among themselves what constitutes this disorder. Uh, Sam Clemens and John Peters were two clinicians at the University of Arkansas Medical Center, and they were instrumental in promoting this uh, diagnostic category they called minimal brain damage, uh, which is an interesting, or excuse me, minimal brain dysfunction. And that's an interesting term because the term brain dysfunction places these children's problems squarely within the purview of the medical uh, profession. And the modifying adjective of minimal exempts them from having to show any evidence of actual brain dysfunction. And their list of symptoms of minimal brain dysfunction went on for two pages and included everything from poor spelling to homicide. And they never make it clear what's the difference between poor spelling caused by minimal brain dysfunction and plain old poor spelling, or for that matter, homicide caused by minimal brain dysfunction and plain old homicide. And so it's this grab bag of symptoms. And some of the symptoms, but in the same account, can list symptoms that are mutually exclusive. So C. Keith Connors uh, created a rating scale for the diagnosis of hyperactivity uh, that's still used today, the Connors rating scale. And according to Dr. Connors, uh, submissive is a symptom of hyperactivity. So is defiant. Uh, excitable is listed. And so is inattentive. Um, stubborn is listed, and so is overly eager to please. Wow. Yeah, by the way, uh, towards the end of his life, Doc Connors felt kind of bad about the monster he helped create. And at the end of his life, he gave an interview and he called the skyrocketing rates of diagnosis and drugging of ADHD a national disaster of dangerous proportions. Yeah, absolutely. And that's obviously our listeners can look that up. You know, there are many accounts of people sharing that on social media and, you know, some kind of distorted the saying and that the headlines became, but, but the message here is what I'm, what I'm, what I'm getting. First of all, that's a, 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 a large grab bag to have these opposite you know, like uh, submissive and too excitable. And I mean, it just blows my mind. And, and 
people just accepted it. I guess the doctors or the pharmaceutical companies sold the doctors and the doctors sold the parents and the parents ultimately out of fear, right, of not raising their children well, uh, bought into it. Well, Paul Wender was, uh, he wrote the first book on hyperactivity for a general audience, The Hyperactive Child. And um, he begins his book with this description of the hyperactive child, uh, hyperactive children whom he portrays literally as monsters. He says, quote, the parents frequently report after an active and restless infancy, the child stood and walked at an early age, and then like an infant King Kong, burst the bars of his crib and marched forth to destroy the house. <laughs> I mean, for sure. I mean, um, I these kids. Yeah. And I get the visual. Yeah. But obviously now hearing it, it's like uh that's not even an actual representation of even a wild child in a crib, right? That's the overdramatization of of a temper or behavior, you know. Um and tell me so now that we sort of have this almost a little bit of history, um, I'm sure there's more, but today, like what have for, for you, what is ADHD today now looking at all the research that you've, uh, you know, conducted and now you, you wrote the book, it's available, it's out there. And if somebody came up to you now and said, so now that you know all this to you, uh, Patrick, what is ADHD? Yeah, it's a label that's used to justify giving prescriptions, stimulants to kids. That's all it is. It's not a disease. It's uh, the, the uh, DSM description, um, which uh, was listed, which um, this was first listed in category in the DSM 1987. And they divide it two types, three types, uh, hyperactive type, hyperactive subtype, inattentive subtype, and uh, combine. So for a diagnosis of ADHD hyperactive type, you need six symptoms from a checklist of nine. For diagnosis of ADHD inattentive type, you need six symptoms from another checklist of nine. And for diagnosis of combined type, you need six symptoms from both. And uh, so two children can have a diagnosis of ADHD and have no symptoms in common. So it's not clear in what sense this is the same disorder or even different subtypes of the same disorder other than the researchers say so. Yeah. And these symptoms are hopelessly subjective and context dependent. Every single one of them is classified by the adjective often, which raises the obvious question, how often is too often? And yeah. let's, let's look at just one of them. Often unable to play or engage in leisure activities quietly. Guess what? Kids do not play quietly. Well, especially leisure activities, right? They chatter incessantly. They yell and scream and laugh. It's part of being a kid. 
you have to wonder if these people ever had children or ever were children. And then if all else fails, there's a diagnostic category, ADHD, not otherwise specified. So, uh, which doesn't have to meet even these vague criteria. So the upshot is, if a clinician wants to give a child a diagnosis of ADHD, he can do so. Yeah, yeah, that's that's clear to me. And, you know, it's interesting when you said, like, the two children can both have ADHD and, and not have the same symptoms. Um, it's just so, it's such a grab bag. It's such a wide net that no wonder it's over-diagnosed. Now, I will always argue and say, I don't agree with overdiagnosed because that still means that there is a disorder. And, you know, to me, it's just like the label has been overly used and medication has been, you know, used, I think, way too much. Um, and so uh, let's talk a little bit about the medication. Right. And for those listening, we may have some new parents that are just coming to the, you know, right after the diagnosis coming to this podcast. What are the main medications? Um, that are currently given for ADHD that are said to, you know, work. And we'll talk about effectiveness as well. But for now, let's, let's talk about the medications. Yeah, the most widely prescribed drug is amphetamine. Adderall consists of mixed salts of amphetamine. This is the same drug that is known colloquially on the street as speed. It's not a similar drug. It's the same drug. Dexedrine is the right-handed, pharmacologically active form of speed. Vivance is a prodrug that is converted to speed in the body. And the other main drug given for this condition is Ritalin, which is a chemical substance that is similar in structure to speed and does more or less the same thing for the body. These are dangerous, highly addictive drugs. You don't have to take my word for that. Even the DEA says so. Yeah, and that's what I was gonna say next is that this is classified alongside of cocaine and meth and you know, these are not uh, drugs to take lightly, especially with children. And, and you said the word dangerous, right? And I just want our, our listeners to understand that what both Patrick and I are saying, it's not that, you know, when we say dangerous, it means that if too much is taken or the wrong child takes it, or the side effects, you know, are extreme, there's some real dangers here. It's not that we're anti-meds in general, but to give these strong drugs to young children, as young as I believe four now, or even I've heard three or four, I don't know if that's true, but it's going really young, right? Yeah, Rebecca Riley was started on clonidine when she was two. So this is a, uh, a, a young girl that you talk about in your book. I don't know if you want to just kind of give like a, yeah. a quick summary of that. It's a, it's a really um, uh, intense story, but yeah, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, she was uh, she was in a, lived in a suburb of Boston, and um, you read this account. This 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 poor kid had the deck stacked against her from the beginning. Uh, the only thing that was wrong with her was that she had the misfortune to being born to two parents 
who were probably unfit to take care of a pet goldfish, let alone a tiny, helpless human being, let alone three of them. And the two older children were already, uh, they'd already been diagnosed and drugged for ADHD. And Rebecca was uh, diagnosed at the age of two, as I said. I mean, the sheer blinding fatuity of diagnosing a two-year-old with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder just leaves me at a loss for words. And the doctor gave her clonidine. And at the age of three, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And the doctor gave her, uh, what was it, clonidine, cyprexa, and I think one other drug. And uh, the parent, and at the age of four, she died as a direct result of the drug she had been given. Uh, the parents were both convicted of murder. Uh, the doctor was given immunity. Her name is Kayoko Kifuji. Uh, she was given immunity in exchange for testifying against the parents. And reading the account, um, couldn't find any evidence of anything being wrong with this ch child that could not be attributed to drug-induced toxicity. She was so doped up by these drugs, she could barely stay awake in preschool. What a what a sad story. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I've talked to so many parents and often what I hear kind of between the lines is that parents go, well, yeah, I know there's side effects and, you know, some are more extreme than others, but that's very rare, right? They're being sold this rare story, but then it's almost like Russian roulette. You don't know if your child will be the next Rebecca, right? Now, of course, some parents will say, well, I'm not going to give my two-year-old drugs, but I've, I've talked to parents where the child was four and five, and to me, that's not far off uh, developmentally to start there, right? So, um, and in this case, what blows my mind is that the doctors give an immunity to testify against the, in order to testify against the parents, but it was the doctor that ultimately needed to give the prescription for the parents to get the drugs, right? Yeah, and so. the parents kept uh, reporting that they'd run out of drugs or lost them, and the doctor just obediently wrote prescriptions for more. Just, you know, this is someone who's a psychiatrist, for crying out loud, and she just seems totally clueless about the motivations of her fellow human beings. I mean, this was a drug-seeking mom and uh, they'd been, they, they admitted to giving the child extra clonidine to, 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 to shut her up when she got uh, too rambunctious. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, it's unfortunate because what that brings to mind and going back to uh, Dr. Still way back in the day and then jumping forward, you know, so, so that we back then didn't consider the influence of the environment of the, the, pa the parents, the household. Um, and now when we go to the 80s, the, there's the ACE study, right? The CDC, Kaiser Permanente conducted the ACE studies. And finally, it seemed like that they admitted, oh, well, <clears throat> if, you know, children with, I think it was, <clears throat> excuse me, it was three or more of the ACEs are more likely to be diagnosed or to have ADHD. And it seemed like a little bit of a victory. Oh, so traumatic upbringing uh, might actually have a lot to do with it. But then how, how did that suddenly kind of fade into the background? And most parents I talked to have no idea. 
Uh, I never heard of the ACE study. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the uh, subject of my first book was the supposed genetic basis of schizophrenia. And I concluded, first of all, uh, that schizophrenia is not even like, uh, is not even a coherent diagnostic category. And whatever you call this condition, it's not inherited. And so then I turned my attention to the question, well, what does cause the complaints that fall under this diagnostic label? And uh, paranoia, delusions, hallucinations. And there is a mountain of evidence that these complaints are caused, not triggered, caused by physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, and every other category of adverse childhood experience. This correlation is robust, reliable, dose-dependent, which is considered proof of cause and effect. It cuts across income brackets, ethnic identities, national boundaries. It's been demonstrated again and again and again in cross-sectional studies, prospective cohort studies, case control studies. There is no doubt Bad things happen, and they can drive you crazy. And in the case of ADHD, there are literally hundreds of reasons why a given child might have problems with inattention or hyperactivity. And it seems to me it's far better to find out the cause of a given child's distress and address that. And then to attribute this child's problems to some mythical disease entity, the existence of which has never been demonstrated. Yeah, and, and that's uh, something that I've come to realize early on. Well, when I say early on, maybe three years into my research, the word traumatic events, uh, children feeling unsafe, nervous system, uh, you know, behavior because the nervous system is stuck in defense mode and can't sort of regulate back down to natural. And what I realized is that um, it's really about not wanting to be responsible that we as parents or as adults are affecting our children that way. And that we try to label them all as the same, like if this works for this child, it should work for that child, right? And everyone's unique. And so it became this like, well, is it a disorder? Like, is it a brain disorder? Meaning, hey, sorry, uh, parents, not much you can do other than give them a pill. Or can the parents, uh, and we did the same in our family, can the parents step up and say, you know what, the child being labeled with a disorder like that, to me, that's a, a check engine light in the family of like, What's what needs to be uh, uh, transformed in the family so the nervous system of that child can calm down and the the behaviors that we label as ADHD, those will dissolve over time because a child calms down. Would you say that's within w what you're thinking as well? Yeah, I, I agree 100 percent. Yeah, it's uh, telling people they're not responsible for their child's problems may make them feel a little better momentarily. But it's also denying them the chance to learn, to grow. The people who dispense these drugs love to blabber about stigma. They're blaming the parents. And, but I can think of few things more stigmatizing to parents 
than telling them, you are powerless to help your child with his problems. I mean, isn't that the whole point of being a parent? Yep. I 100% agree with you. I've said this as well many times over. I couldn't articulate it as well as you, but it was like, wait a minute. If we tell parents, don't worry, it's not due to bad parenting, that lets them off the hook. And of course, you know, bad, wrong, these terms are whatever, right? It's like, yeah, maybe it's not due to bad parenting, but could it be to unconscious or lazy or, you know, kind of parenting or traumatic parenting that, you know, hand me down parenting uh, uh, techniques or patterns from our, you know, parents or grandparents? Could it be that that, no, 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 no. It's not due to bad parenting. Take a pill. Yeah, and, and I commented uh, in the book, um, parental authority these days uh, has been so downgraded. I think a lot of parents feel like their children's frazzled servants. My formative years were the 70s and the late 60s. And I do not remember my childhood as terribly harsh and punitive. In fact, I remember it as quite pleasant. Even though, no, not even though, because, because grown-ups were in charge. And this was just a fact. Everything else had to be worked around. Even the juvenile delinquents knew this. They would break the rules when grown-ups weren't looking. Oh yes, we, we had those. <laughs> But even they would not have dreamed of challenging grown-up authority. And none of us had perfect parents. But it's far better for the parents to be in charge than not to be in charge. And, and that's, that's lost. And I, I'm sure for the uh, diagnosis of ADHD, I'm, I think lack, I'm sure lack of discipline is a big cause. Lack of outdoor free playtime is another big cause. And then there are other children who come from abusive or chaotic homes who get this label and they need help, but I don't think we're helping them by telling them they have a drug treatable brain disease. And finally, in a small number, there is a, there's a long list of undiagnosed medical conditions which can cause problems with inattention or hyperactivity. And if you give the kids stimulant drugs, you're just papering over the problem. It's like a doctor who diagnoses every patient who coughs with coughing disorder and prescribes cough drops without bothering to find out if this is due to strep throat or cancer or tuberculosis or whatever else is causing it. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And maybe this is a good, a good moment to uh, ask you this question. Um, you know, parents who are listening, um, who are, their children are on medication already, or they're thinking, they're considering to put their uh, child, their daughter, their son on medication. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the dangers of, yeah. I know we had this case of Rebecca, right? It's an, it's an extreme case, but just in general, or perhaps you can talk a little bit about like, there's this, there's this notion that uh, stimulant drugs for ADHD are very effective, even academically, lo long-term, very effective. L maybe let's start there. Like, what do you say to that? Well, there are hundreds of studies that show that in the short term, these drugs flatten kids' affect, they increase 
their tolerance for boring tasks. In other words, they create the kind of changes that a harried, uh, an, a harried school teacher or an exhausted parent might regard as an improvement. And that is it. There is no, there are no data showing these drugs produce any long-term benefits in children. And you don't have to take my word for that. In my book, I have quote after quote from eminently credentialed experts uh, at prestigious institutions, probably every single one of whom was pro-med, who will say the same thing. And the MTA study was designed to close this gap in our knowledge. So this was a randomized controlled trial, far and away the largest study, far and away the longest study. And they had 579 kids, uh, all labeled with ADHD combined type. So presumably they were the most severely impaired, most likely to benefit from treatment. And they randomized these kids to uh, four different groups. So medication, medication plus therapy, therapy alone, and usual community care. And at the eight-year follow-up, there was no difference between any of the treatment groups for any of 24 outcome variables. So no effect on ADHD symptoms, no effect on oppositional behavior or antisocial behavior, no effect on anxiety or depression, no effect on reading skills, math skills, grade point average, grade retention, no effect on social functioning, psychiatric hospitalization, traffic tickets, auto accidents, the list goes on and on. And the only long-term effect they were able to document, the only one, was that these drugs stunted the kids' growth. So at the uh, eight-year follow-up, the medicated kids were on average two inches shorter than the unmedicated ones. And this remain true with the 16-year follow-up. They never, they never caught up. There was no rebound growth. Wow. So, yeah. But how did, how did the establishment, the psychiatric or medical establishment, manage to take that information and still spin it in their favor? Maybe not just that from that study, but there's, a, there's this narrative that, oh, no, um, ADHD medication, uh, you know, works uh, academically, your child will be better off. Where is that coming from? Well, at the three-year follow-up, they found, uh, out of 24 outcome variables, they found the drugs produced an improvement in three areas. Parents and teachers' ratings of hyperactivity and teachers' rating of inattention. And that was it. And so now... We have the eight-year follow-up and the 16-year follow-up, which uh, have shown no benefit to the drugs. And people still quote, people still cite the three-year follow-up as proof that these drugs work. There was a book by Stephen Hinshaw, who's a prominent psychiatrist and uh, 
I think he's at Harvard. I know, I know he did, or psychologist, excuse me. Uh, he did his PhD at Harvard. Um, and he uh, cites that, uh, he, he cites the three-year follow-up as proof these drugs work. And he ignores the eight-year follow-up, which had been published three years earlier. Now, uh, it's pretty unlikely, I think, that he was unaware of the results of the eight-year follow-up because he was the second author on that paper. Yeah. And that kind of mendacity just takes my breath away. I mean, that to me, all, all that comes to mind is, is cherry picking, right? It's like, oh, that'll work for us. And of course, a lot of these prominent uh, psychologists or psychiatrists in the field um, have gotten money from pharma. Mm -hmm. I will say 85 or 90% of the, the experts that we reached out to, you know, that are on the pro-medication, pro-disorder side have gotten money from pharma and pretty much 90% of them turned us down. They didn't want to be interviewed because they thought we were up to something. Well, we are. We're just asking questions. And, you know, any, any uh, research savvy parent, well, not, don't have to be savvy to go to Wiki uh, and, and check, you know, the facts. You can, you can read about even, in most cases, how much money they've gotten, right? It's not a secret. But it's just, yeah, the, the audacity to to ignore this information blows my mind. And here's something interesting, if I may just share a personal story uh, that you inspired me to share, because our son who was diagnosed or we had him diagnosed at the age of six, he's now 13. He was because he, you know, they said he can't sit still in the classroom. So we ended up moving him away from uh, public or traditional education. And he for the last five years has, or four and a half has been in child led education. And he's calmed down. He's not hyperactive anymore. He's not overly impulsive. So you could say without any medication, just switching the education style has calmed him down. And recently we were concerned that later he wouldn't be able to catch up with children when he goes to high school at the level of, you know, average level of math, reading, writing, and all the skills, right? So we had him, uh, him and his brother both, they had tutors this summer. And in two, two and a half months, our son, who was said to have ADHD, who we did not medicate, in two and a half months, he went from below average, in most cases, to average and above. In two and a half months, this child that was said to have no attention, he's got a disorder, he's never going to turn out unless he takes medication. I'm now very grateful and happy to say that He's doing just as fine as the kids that were, you know, always in public school or traditional education, and some of them, lots of them medicated. And he's, he probably hasn't even given his, his all yet. But uh, it just blows my mind how those kind of uh, uh, cases are ignored, you know, because they don't, they don't happen often, you know, we were lucky that we were able to change schools and and give them a more you know, natural environment and reduce the stress and change the, the um, diet and, and have them start exercising. And, you know, all of it makes a difference. Anyway, I just wanted to share that because I'm very proud of that um, uh, achievement by Kai. So that's very interesting. I'd like to uh, offer an anecdote of my own. My Please. mother's brother, my uncle Philip, uh, was a high school art teacher. Uh, a job which he emphatically did not enjoy. But he had an interesting idea. 
He said at the age of 10, we should just take all the boys out of the classroom, send them to some place where they would wring them out with strenuous work and strenuous play all day long. Then at the age of 15, we'll put them back into the classroom. You know how much time it would take them to make up the time they lost? Six months. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if we have to go to that extreme, but I think giving kids more free playtime would definitely be an improvement. Uh, you know, in my book, I talked with uh, Deborah Ria. She, she's a wonderful lady. She's a professor of uh, kinesiology at Texas Christian University. And she founded what's called the LINK program for kids uh, kindergarten through third grade. And they give them an hour of unstructured playtime, outdoor playtime every day, broken up into four 15-minute segments. Kids never spend an hour, more than an hour in the classroom without a break. And they found that uh, the kids, the incidence of uh, off-task and disruptive antisocial behaviors decreased, body mass decreased, uh, the incidence of positive social behaviors, clapping, hopping, skipping, laughing, cheering, smiling, went up. Imagine that. Kids who are allowed to play outdoors laugh and smile more. <laughs> oh, and what about the all-important standardized test scores? They went up. They didn't go up by a lot, but the point is they went up. They didn't go down. Yeah, yeah. I think modern idea seems to be sticking kids no, you know, they're lengthening the school day, cutting back on recess, piling on homework as if sticking the kids' noses in the material all day long is going to ensure learning. Yeah. Yeah, it is it's so sad to see, you know, lots of arts programs went away, outdoor play is not celebrated as learning, right? even though that's the social cues and all, all the stuff that kids, you know, learn how to start relationships, maintain them, complete them, you know, conflict resolution, all that stuff that doesn't just happen on cue. It doesn't happen in a classroom. Well, it could happen, you could force it, but it happens naturally. And when we take that away, I totally agree with you. It makes absolute sense that things would go up, scores would go up, happiness goes up, you know, the body gets to the, the, the nervous system, the somatic trauma that's stuck in the body gets to, you know, be expressed and shaken off. And it's just amazing to me. And this might be a good point to ask, you know, uh, you, you've touched upon already uh, side effects of, of, of drugs, of these stimulant drugs, and maybe we can uh, talk a little bit more about that and then lead into um, who could possibly benefit from these drugs being uh, uh, you know, prescribed so readily? Yeah. Well, we've already, we know the drug companies benefit. And the point that needs to be made crystal clear is drug company money means our money. 14% of prescription drug costs are paid for out of pocket. That means 86% are paid for by the rest of us. We're paying in higher prices, we're paying in higher taxes, we're paying with our insurance premiums. And if you are 
one of America's tens of millions of benefits ineligible employees who often are doing the same work as their benefits eligible colleagues for a fraction of their salary and no benefits, you're paying with your surplus labor. So drug company money means our money. So the drug companies take our money and use it to manufacture the evidence purporting to show their products are safe and effective. Then they take more of our money and use it to fund the expert panels that decide who should take these drugs. They take more of our money and use it to fund the key opinion leaders who tout the drug makers wares at professional meetings. They take more of our money and use it to pay for advertising and reprint orders in medical journals. Uh, they take more of our money and use it to pay for direct-to-consumer advertising, which not only uh, creates demand for their product, but it also ensures a compliant media, which is very unlikely to do or say anything to incur the wrath of the drug companies. So the drug companies take our money and use it to manufacture demand for our product. How can all that not result in our being awash in useless and dangerous drugs? And yeah. uh, besides the drug companies and then psychiatry, you've got a whole profession which is predicated on the assumption, completely unproven assumption, that every variety of human distress is a drug-treatable brain disease. And by the time the average student loan indenture, by the time someone graduates from medical school is $200,000. And so if they choose to specialize in, and you, you can't get out of those debt, you can't even get out of that by declaring bankruptcy. The only way to get out of that is to have yourself declared 100% disabled. So, um, what, if they choose to specialize in psychiatry, then they're locked into the medical model for the rest of their careers. They're not going to pay off that debt doing psychotherapy. I don't think most of them even have training in psychotherapy. And uh, so that is the genesis of the 15-minute med check. And if you wanted to create a system to aid people in distress, you would never create the system we have. Uh, we have, it, it reminds me, oh, I was once watching a documentary about the Roman Empire. And they said the role of the proconsuls, the, the Roman Empire existed to tax. And the role of these proconsuls was to squeeze as much taxes out of the province as possible without causing the local economy to implode. It's kind of the same thing here. Their, their, their function is not to aid in human distress. It's to sell as many drugs as possible to people without actually killing them. Yeah. yeah and um, what else? There's the, uh, there's the uh, ghost writers. There's the, there's the popular media, which is addicted to drug company revenue, the time of falling ad revenue. And there's a new factor that's entered this equation. The law has created a perverse set of incentives, which for some parents may seem, may make getting their child labeled ADHD seem like an attractive option. 
you know, when I was a boy, I understood mental illness to mean paranoia, delusions, hallucinations. Nobody wanted to be called mentally ill or to have their kids mentally ill. But today, if kids get this label ADHD, they're eligible for extra time on tests, note takers, tutoring, classroom aids, high interest materials. That last one leaves me scratching my head. <laughs> Why does a kid need a psychiatric label to get high interest materials? Yeah, is there, getting that? the rest of them are getting low interest materials. Yeah, I guess so. And uh, they can get extra time taking the SAT, the law school aptitude test, the medical college aptitude test. Unfortunately, nobody has figured out a way to give all these ADHD afflicted aspiring docs extra time when they're working the emergency room and a patient presents with, say, an open skull brain injury or a cardiac arrest. And in the long run, I don't think the parents are doing their kids a favor. I mean, satisfaction in life comes from hard work and open and honest consultation with yourself. Making excuses, cadging special favors, gaming the system, that is not the route to a satisfying life. Right, and, and I think the, the, the thing is that parents, you know, again, uh, the fear of, of their children not quote unquote turning out and them being a bad parent, you know, it's a justifiable fear, right? A concern that we all have. We want to do our job right as parents. We want to raise good children. We want to know that when we die, they're, they're alive. They can generate income. They can be happy, right? That's all justified. But I think what we've created, I agree with you. There's a system in place now that none of the respectable, you know, the Russell Barclays and the Stephen Hinchon, they can't possibly one day stop and say, you know what, I kind of been wrong all this time because their legacy will fall apart like a house of cards. And who wants that at 70 plus years old when you've bought your house and maybe you have a boat and you have a nice life and kids and grandkids and barbecues and, you know, life is good, right? You're not going to, you're not going to collapse that house of card on yourself because it's, it means in the end, it could mean in the end that your your entire life was a sham, right? So I understand that. But what can we do in your opinion? Like I feel a lot of the parents and experts that agree with our movement and that are on board and love what we do, it, the question's always like, well, can it be stopped? What can we do? Like can ADHD, the label, the disorder, can it be over? Can we change the name in the DSM? Is that where we start? Do we take the word disorder out? Because I know that uh, uh, I've worked with veterans a lot um, and uh, you know, they don't call it PTSD. They call it PTS. They don't add the disorder anymore at the end. Uh, at least the veterans don't. Um, and so what, where do you think, what's it, what's a start? What's a tangible or realistic start to perhaps at some point flip the script? Yeah. Well, I have some thoughts on the matter. I mean, since the beginning of history, nations, conquered other nations and built empires. And the ones that weren't good at it got stomped on by the ones that You grew or you died. This was a moral imperative. And it seems to me this process has been completed. Little kids in mud huts in African villages 
are now online. I've seen this. There's no more spots on the map marked here be tigers. And the only terrain left for would-be tyrants to conquer is our own bodies. And uh, we live in a kind of bizarro world. There was never a time when the wealthy cared about whether common people were fulfilled or self-actualized. I'm not even sure they should. But they wanted people to be productive. And now we live in a world in which much of our repetitious labor is done by machines. And many of us have more value to our rulers as consumers of medical interventions than we do as workers. And you'll notice our rulers no longer talk about breeding master races or building empires upon which the sun never sets. Now they speak in much more dulcet tones. And that's a very good sign. That means they're afraid of us. And nowhere is this fear on display more rawly than the muling of the legacy media. You must not do your own research when it comes to science. Yeah. It's the 21st century equivalent of pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And this is a golden opportunity. Mm. By doing what we're doing now, speaking truth to power, we can band together, realize there's lots of other people out there who feel the same way. We can take back the reins of power and make society over, not from the top down, but from the bottom up, and build institutions that operate on a human scale and do a better job of meeting actual human needs. That's the kind of great reset I can get behind. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And, and for those of you listening, uh, I highly recommend you get your hands on Patrick's book, Obedience Pills, ADHD and the Medicalization of Childhood. And again, the reason why is because I think uh, just like ourselves, uh, Patrick, you, you write what I call from the other side, you and you're not stuffing it down anyone's throat. As far as I'm concerned, when I was reading it, it wasn't like, this is the Bible, and only this is true, and everything else is wrong, right. And I think, you know, most parents don't have a lot of time if you're a single parent, or you have three, four kids, jobs, you know, career, it is hard to read, you know, one book or two books fully a year. I mean, that's how that was my sort of attempt when I was a parent, my kids were young, I can do more now. But I will say that if if a parent who is at least questioning or unsure whether to put their child on medication or not reads two or three books like yours coming from the other side, the site that actually says, hey, uh, well, I'm not sure if the the burden of proof is on ours, or is on us or you, right? And if if I think if we did that, if we stopped and we we didn't just take the mainstream media's narrative, you know, as the narrative, the loudest bullhorn doesn't mean it's the best message or the most truthful message. I think um, you're right. I think we could start. You know, more more parents can go into the doctor's office and question and say. You know, I, I read this book and there's a study and, you know, this 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 talked about 
the, the, the side effects and it's not really that effective, what do you say? And it starts a new dialogue. And I think a lot of psychologists will probably be like, wait, what? I'm the expert here. Why are you questioning what I do? But I think we need that, right? We need to start there. Here's the thing. Uh, we, we didn't talk about this yet. I mean, we, we touched upon Ritalin a little bit. And, you know, there's that 30 year study that Nadine Lambert did at Berkeley, which oh, again, yes, right? A lot of parents don't know this. And if you haven't heard about this, uh, pay close attention. And I'm not going to paraphrase it or butcher it. You, you have more info on that. But I just know that there's a, a study she did that pretty much uh, you know, showed the opposite, because we always hear, if you don't medicate your child for ADHD, your child will later self medicate. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that, if you, you will. Yeah, Dr. Lambert was a clinical psychologist, and she carried out a long term study of 492 children in San Francisco, followed them up for 20 years. And so in 1998, she and her colleagues published their results. And uh, they showed, um, so they had a set of children diagnosed with ADHD and a set of matched controls. They found the kids with ADHD were more likely to have substance use disorder. The ones who had been medicated were even more likely to have a substance use disorder. And the ones who had been medicated for a year or more had the highest rate of substance use disorder. And then uh, a year later, a study published by Joseph Biederman and his associates purported to refute these results. And they said that drugging kids for ADHD made them 85% less likely to develop a substance use disorder. Now that sounds like a very impressive result, but a couple of things here. Uh, One is compared to Dr. Lambert's study, the Biederman Group's study was tiny. They had 15, 56 medicated kids and 19 unmedicated ones. Seven of the 19 already had a substance use disorder at baseline. None of the medicated kids did. And finally, they were able to achieve these results uh, only after, quote unquote, correcting for comorbid conduct disorder, which is a known risk factor for substance use disorder. So basically what the Biederman group was saying was that drugging kids for ADHD does not increase the likelihood of a substance use disorder, provided you don't look at the kids who are most at risk for a substance use disorder. And uh, meanwhile, Dr. Lambert found herself a pariah in the research community. Uh, She couldn't get funding to... uh, conduct a more thorough study or a more thorough analysis of the data she had. Uh, The journals would not publish her replies to her critics. And she never got her career back on track. At the age of 76, she was killed in a car crash. Yeah. 
And I think I mentioned this when we first spoke that I was able to get a hold of uh, one of her family members that then connected me with the university. And uh, I was hoping to get my hands on a study. And I was told in an email that, oh, I think that those papers got shredded when we moved the department to a new building. And I was like, wait, what? This is a, a 20 years. I thought it was 20 plus years. It was one of the longest, probably the longest study on Ritalin um, ever done in that, right? And I was just, my mind was blown. How is that possible? How can, how can that be <laughs> gone, right? I mean, you, we look it up on the internet, but like you said, it was never officially published. Uh, and then she passed away. So, and then the Biederman study was how many years compared to 20 plus years, two years? Or, Sounds about right, but I know it was a, the number of children involved was tiny. And that was tiny, too, yeah. So and they stacked I, the deck by correcting for comorbid conduct disorder. Right. And now, the MTA study, and, and also the, the Biederman group did a, a, a meta-analysis, and they uh, this time they found no effect of ADHD meds on substance use disorder one way or another. They tried to spin this in the best way possible. They said uh, this will put to rest fears that uh, prescribing these drugs will create a substance use disorder. But even if that's true, that's setting the bar pretty low. Isn't the whole point of giving these drugs to kids to make them better? And finally, the MTA study looked at substance use disorder, but uh, they just looked at unmedicated kids with those who had taken, and they found no effect, but they just looked at unmedicated kids and compared them to those who had taken the drugs a month or longer. So they're lumping in kids who'd taken these drugs for a month with those who had taken them for years and years, a tactic which is guaranteed to blur any treatment effect. So would a more fine-grained analysis that looked for a dose-dependent relationship find one? Nobody is interested. Nobody's in a position to do the study seems interested in finding out. Yeah. It's amazing. What blows my mind is like, I'm not an expert. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a PhD. I'm just a parent doing research. And one of the things that to me is just such common sense is that if you psychologically send a message to your child that you need this external crutch to be whole, right? For years and years and years, and they physically feel, let's call it better, and it's not really better, but what they feel is like, oh, the, the teacher is nicer to me, my parents seem calmer. Okay, I guess this makes me a good child, right? And eventually, I feel like, wouldn't that like, it just makes sense logically lead a person to then as an adult, look outside for external sources and crutches to feel better when they're not feeling well, right? Like, and then you go to cigarettes or you go to caffeine, the simple ones. And all you need to experience at some point is like, hey, let's try some cocaine and boom, you're like, oh, this feels kind of familiar and like similar and I feel happy. And I'm so to me, it just makes complete sense that that would at least uh, be a danger, right? And not the opposite, not that if you don't medicate them, they will self-medicate. Now, I know that's happened too, but as these studies prove, there's just no validity to say that that's the majority. Uh, and, and I think Dr. Lambert had pretty big, 
prove and uh, got a lot of heat for it and yep. and should have gotten a lot of heat for it because it went against the grain big time, right? If taking, if becoming a better person is just a matter of taking the right pills, then just about everything I think I know about being human must be wrong. But that can't possibly be the case. If becoming a better person were a matter of taking the right pills, we wouldn't be sitting here discussing it. We'd all be taking the pills. There is no way you could keep something like that a secret. Yeah. Well, well said. Well said. I, I 100% agree. Now, um, we've talked about some great stuff. And I just want to perhaps we can we can end with this question. Like, I've always asked myself, I want to hear what you have to say to this is like, how come there isn't a and I'm being sort of idealistic here, a uh, nationally or internationally or you know globally televised debate where both sides can come to the table with their top experts and their top studies. And we, you know, they lock themselves in for a week or whatever and hash it out. And, and really the, the intention is to get the truth out there so we can actually help people who have these behavioral, you know, behaviors that we call symptoms that we label with ADHD. How come that's not happening? Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, um, the media is now dependent upon drug company revenue for their advertising. Back in the 90s, they did some pretty hard-hitting pieces. The daytime talk shows did some pretty hard-hitting pieces on psych drugs, including ADHD drugs. And Dr. Bregan was often invited on these shows. And all that came to a halt in 1997. And that was when the FDA allowed direct to consumer advertising of prescription drugs. And um, I can also tell you in the world of publishing, uh, about the only nonfiction publisher, well, I mean, my last two books were published by uh, Samistat Health Writers Cooperative, which was started by Dr. Healy precisely because uh, he was having difficulty getting his message out. Now, if a world famous expert has trouble getting his message out, what chance does a rank outsider such as myself have? And uh, the only uh, the only uh, academic publisher I can think of that publishes this sort of thing is Palgrave, which published my first book. And when I was marketing my second book, uh, I learned something. I found out that. Well, well, and, and if you want a university press, if they don't have a medical school, they're not going to be interested in a medically themed book. And if they do have a medical school, they're not going to want to say anything that's going to incur the wrath of the drug companies. And finally, when you look at mainstream nonfiction publishers, something I learned, and I really had no idea until I began marketing my second book. Virtually all of it is controlled by three giant corporations. And there's no way in without an agent. So I'm uh, deeply grateful to Dr. Healy for uh, establishing this, this alternative means of getting the truth out. And uh, 
I believe he he's interested in more titles and he'd like to break out of the psyche psychiatry, critical psychiatry ghetto and start publishing another areas of medicine as well. Yeah. It sounds to me like, you know, as a, as a parent listening or as a citizen that, uh, you know, when big companies, uh, in this case, pharma or media publishers are in charge of what gets out, it is harder for both sides to, to get equal exposure, right? To, for, for, so when parents are busy and they don't have time and they happen to listen to mainstream media because they've been sold the narrative that that's the best news or the most truthful news, then they're really only getting what I call an incomplete narrative. I, don't, I hate to say a lie because it's not all lies, but like it's incomplete and it's one-sided. And so, so what I'm hearing really is there's just a sort of a, hopefully an independent revolution of using the internet or uh, word to mouth is our strongest asset, I think right now for, for marketing, right? Like for me, and I'm just going to show this here visually, like is such a great uh, uh, design of a cover, uh, the colors, the, the simplicity, the, it just stopped me. And, and, and I love designs. I think it's very well done. Um, and it invited me to read it. Right. And I think, I've already told lots of people about it. I have a, a dear friend who stopped by, saw it, and she's like, oh, I used to have ADHD. I was medicated. I was I was on four different medications. And, you know, and she's like, oh my God, this is great, and wrote it down. And so I think spreading the message that way for now seems to be the only way. It's like, like you said, they're afraid of the word to mouth, of us gathering, of us sharing, because they cannot yet let's hope not, but they cannot yet control that the way they can control social media and the mainstream narrative and the pharmaceutical companies controls the advertising, right? Yes, I agree. Yeah. Kind of sad. Yeah, they're the professionals. They're, they're getting paid to do this and they're getting paid with our money. We're the amateurs, but there's more of us than there are of them. So they're okay. the... Let's keep fighting. They're, they're the, the Roman Empire. Empire. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I just appreciate you again. I want to congratulate you on uh, writing, finishing, publishing this book. It's available on Amazon. People can order it there. Again, it's called Obedience Pills, ADHD and the Medicalization of Childhood by Patrick D. Hahn. And uh, it's just uh, refreshing to uh, meet a fellow believer or somebody who really I can say what I hear in your voice and your way of being, your energies that you really want to make a difference in the lives of children or adults who have been you know diagnosed labeled with this i don't hear an agenda i don't hear a oh well i get money from the pharmaceutical companies and this is why i do this and i sit on panels and blah 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 it's just not there for me and it hasn't been with any of our experts like we've yet to have an expert on i think we had one or two who got a little pharmaceutical money in the past but they're done with it um but any anyone on the other side of the pro medication pro disorder, there's always some interest, some, I would say conflict of interest, it's like lobbying, right? There's something at work that if we just looked at it and plain, like it's in plain sight, it's like you're getting money from the company that makes the drugs and you speak for the drug. So how could you be even, uh, uh, you know, valuing both sides and let parents choose? There's just none of that. And so I just acknowledge you for for the stand uh, that you've taken also with your other books uh, for us to really look at what's what system have we created and is it actually 
helping healing people or is it making them dependent? And I think we need to spread that message and, and, uh, and thank you for being on the podcast. It was my pleasure. Okay, likewise, real pleasure meeting you.